Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here this morning. God has been so good. He's been so good. He is so good. He will be so good. His goodness is not dependent on you, thank God. His goodness isn't dependent on me. His goodness is a product of his nature. It is his nature. And so thank God his goodness doesn't change with the weather and it doesn't change with culture and it doesn't change with um, our attitudes or our actions that he is always good. Uh, But thank God that when you enter into his goodness, when you draw near to God, you can experience his goodness firsthand and, 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 and not only behold it, but, but be a channel of that goodness. Thank God that we are the body of Christ. So what Jesus wants to accomplish in this planet, he wants to do through his church. We are his body, the fullness of him who fills everything and is in everything. That's what Ephesians says. And so I want you to embrace that and and realize that you are not a spectator. You're not a spectator. You were not created to watch. You were created to participate. Amen. So sometimes church feels like spectator because we, we face all those chairs facing this way. And we put some people on a stage doing things. And so sometimes, you, if you're not careful, we're preconditioned to think that that's this, they're performing for me. And if I like it, I might come back. And I might clap. And I might smile. Um, but my job is to consume whatever they're producing. But that's not what church is meant to be. It's not what a church service is meant to be. It's not what time of worship is meant to be. That This is a time where we come together and, and we encourage one another. We love on one another. We glorify God. We, right now, during this part, we receive the word with joy, with, with uh, faith. We receive the word with gratitude and we, we let it get engrafted into our own soul. And we let it get, get deep into us because we're getting equipped for what comes right after. As soon as we leave this building, ministry begins again. Yeah. And ministry, is, ministry begins when you're here and it begins when you're out here. It doesn't matter. We're all ready for whatever God wants to do. And so this is a time of equipping. This is a time of growth. Um, but it is not a time to consume or, or be a, a nice little spectator. This, you, we're here to participate in what God is doing, to be a part of that. Let him use us. Last week we talked about uh, uh, the, the scripture in John chapter 10. We didn't spend all our time there, but we, we briefly talked about how he said that the thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. We've been talking about this year how God wants to build and to plant in us. God wants you to be a part of of building, and and he's building things in your life. He's planting things in your life that are meant to grow and and meant to be strong even in the middle of a storm. But today I do want to talk a little bit not just about what God is doing in your life personally, but what God is building with us corporately, and, and the word corporate sounds like business, um, but the word corporate comes from the Latin word corpus, which means body. Yeah. So when we talk about doing something corporately, we're not talking about a business function. Uh, here in church, if we use the word corporately, what we mean is, is we're doing something as a body. And, and so uh, while God wants to do something in your life individually, uh, 
I, I, I can't, you can't back it up with scripture that God wants you to live an individual life and just be secluded and, 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 and sheltered off and, and just me and Jesus against the world. That's, that's life. That's not, what the, that's not what the picture that God paints in his word. It's not what Jesus told you. It's not what the apostles told us. It's, it's not the model that he's made for you. In fact, we're going to dive in about how you're a part of the body. You're not a complete body. You are a part of a body, which means that you, you gain your purpose in relation to the other parts. I have some great fingers here. I'm quite proud of them. I don't know why I should be proud of them. They're not pretty or anything, but they're there. And these, these fingers serve me well. I can pick things up. I can play an instrument. I can think of other things I can do. <laughs> But, but you know, these fingers, the great thing about them is that not one of them looks exactly the same as the other one. And each of them, the, what, the way they function and the way they pick things up is completely dependent on the other fingers being there too, right? If you just had a thumb and you tried to pick something up, it'd be very difficult. But when the thumb in concert with the pinky and the ring finger, which I forgot my ring. I took it off to eat wings, and I didn't put it back on. Uh, <laughs> all of these fingers, when they're working together, they find their purpose. And these, boy, if, as far as parts of the body, these are about as similar as they could get. We're not even talking about toes. We're not even talking about ribs. We're not even talking about ears. These are just fingers. And even in the fingers, there's diversity. And so we have to understand that, that God didn't call you to do everything. He didn't call you to be everything. He called you to be a part of something. And I want to start with a simple, uh, uh, a simple but powerful statement that Jesus made when he was talking to his disciples. He got his disciples away from the rest of the crowd. And he said something. He asked them a question um, that we've... We've talked about uh, throughout Christianity, Christendom, we've talked about this statement. Some people have argued about exactly what he meant. But in Matthew chapter 16, he asked a very important question of his disciples. And he asked, number one, who do people say that I am? We got to know that Jesus is not self-conscious. He's not like, what are people saying about me? <laughs> No, but like when I'm not around, what are they saying? You know, he's not, he's not, he's, he's not trying to find his identity in that. He's, he's being a rabbi. He's being a good teacher. You see, the way, and you especially see this, a good teacher does not teach you what to know. They teach you how to know. They teach you how to learn. They teach you how to think. And, and so the rabbinical teachings, when you joined a yeshiva and you followed a rabbi, they wouldn't just tell you what you need to know. They would ask you, how do you read this verse? What do you see here? What do you think about this? They would ask a lot more questions than, than just making statements. And so in those questions, you're not just getting fed information. Because if I just feed you information, that's the limit of what you know. But if, if we can cultivate someone that learns how to learn and how to take in information, how to process it, how to, how to search the word and find what God is saying, how to be led by the spirit. If you could teach someone that way, then even if they don't have all the information, they can get there, that, that they know how to keep growing, that they're not, their limit isn't what you've told them. And so Jesus would ask his disciples questions. And so he has a very important purpose here. He wants to find out 
what they think of him, what they know about him, what they've come to believe. And he starts with the very simple question, what does everybody else say? And he got some crazy answers back. I don't, I don't know if you've read it, but people said, well, I don't know. Some people say you're this prophet come back. Some people say you're John the Baptist again, which John the Baptist had just died. I don't know how they thought that worked. People say you're this, people say you're that. And then Jesus said to Peter, well, he said to all his disciples, but Peter answered. He said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, well, you're the Messiah, the Christ in, in our Bible. But he would have said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Which to us sounds completely rudimentary. It sounds very, sounds like something our kids would say. It sounds, everybody knows that. But that's a radical thing to say in their time. He says two very radical things. Number one, he says you're the Messiah, which is already enough to get you executed. Then he says you're the son of God. Which, who's bringing that up? Who brought that into the conversation? And Jesus turned to Simon and he said, Simon, there's no human being that could have taught you that. But the father revealed that to you. And he said, from this day, I'm not, you're not going to be called Simon. And Shimon in Hebrew just means a reed, which is very flimsy and bendable. But you're going to be called rock. Caiaphas, you're going to be called in Greek Petros. You're going to be called the rock. And upon this, he says this, and we're going we're to read this in Matthew 16. Verse 18, he says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock... I will build my church. Now, he doesn't simply mean I'm going to build my church on Peter. But on the, that revelation, on that, that truth of who I am, and you knowing that truth, I'm going to build a church on it. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, will not win, will not overpower it. So that, that verse alone is just huge. It's, it's just explosive, right? Yeah. He says, uh, first of all, let's, let's pay attention to what he says. He says, upon this rock, I will build. I will build. Yeah. He doesn't say, you guys are going to have to build a church. He doesn't say, you know, it's up to you to, to get this thing working, to get this thing moving. He says, I will build. Amen. Do you know that hasn't changed? That's right. That didn't change when the last apostle, the last of the original 12 died. That, that's still today. Jesus is the one building the church. He is the chief builder of the church, right? So he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. I love that. I, I, because I, I think the church throughout history, if you're a student of church history, you know we've given Jesus a lot of opportunity to say, I don't know these people. I have no association with them. Yeah. They didn't come from me. Even today, how many times do we look and we just go, oh, what must everyone think of Jesus? But Jesus doesn't seem to be worried about that. In fact, he says, for this reason, I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers and sisters. On the, on the day, that, on, on that great and notable day, it says that he will, there's a day when he will present his church as his bride. And they'll be spotless and pure and, and he, he'll be proud of us. And that's, that's baffling, but, but amazing. I will build my church. So isn't it wonderful that he calls us his church? What church do you go to? His church. I, I don't go to church. I am part of church. His church. This whole, every believer that, that calls the name of Jesus as Lord and every believer that is truly born again, he calls them his 
church, and he's building it. And he says, even the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And you know, that, that's an exciting thing too because then we understand that the church was never a defensive structure. The church is not just trying to keep the world out. The church is moving forward, right? It's progressive because, you know, nobody takes their gates to invade another country. You don't carry your gates with you. What's that over there? What are they carrying? Oh, big iron gates. I don't know why. No, the gates are... The gates, are, the gates of Hades, that means you're advancing, you're taking right. ground, you're, you're causing the enemy trouble. Yeah. The gates will not be able to overpower it. Gates won't be stronger than my church. Hell won't be stronger than my church. Right. So let's start with that. This is, let's, because we've been talking about what God's building in your life. Now I want to talk about what Jesus is building with all of us together, and that's the church. He's building a church. He's still building his church. It wasn't a one-time project that we just got tacked onto. He is always building his church. As a pastor, it's, it's, it's a really great relief to know that I'm not in charge of building his church. I'm, not, I, I'm part of his building, right? I am meant to be a builder in the, in the service of his, the chief builder, but that doesn't mean I don't get to decide what this is going to be. I, I don't, it's not on me to make sure that his church is built. It's him. That's really cool. He says, I'm building my church. We were talking, as, as, as Don and Trudy were talking about the power of getting together and you know, being together. And, and, and Sister Catherine talked about how important was her, in her life to be in that fellowship, how life-giving that was. You know, I, I'm reminded of the, the book of Hebrews that is constantly telling the people to endure, to stand strong, not to give up. And one of, the, one of the chief things he tells them is, number one, put your eyes on Jesus, the one who started it and the one who'll finish it, the author and perfecter of your faith. But then he goes on and he says, he talks about the discipline that, that causes us to endure when we're discipled by the Father, when he, when, he, we are, when he is disciplining, which means discipling, when we're disciplined by him, then we get stronger and we, 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 we can endure, we can keep going. And then he goes on and he says, and here's what we need to do. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. You know, it's very easy for that to become a habit. Maybe last week your car didn't start because it was so unearthly cold, right? We, you know, we woke up and, and the sun decided to just to be way further away or something. I don't know what happened, but it was deadly cold. And maybe your car didn't start. You, you tried it, you tried it. You said, you know what, I'm just going to have to not, not be there on Sunday. The Lord understands. I agree, the Lord totally does. And, and so you went, you went back into the house, you put on your PJs, you got some soup, and, and maybe you <laughs> put a, a sermon online or something so you could feel it. And I know what you felt because I felt this before too uh, because we weren't able to go to Loon Lake. The, the people in Loon Lake said it's not a good time to come. So I went, but I went into my study. I recorded a sermon. I put it out online and, and the church listened to it together. But that's not the same as gathering together. The purpose of this is not just to hear a message, right? So I know the feeling because the first feeling you feel is guilt. <sighs> I wish. I should have been there. One of, people are going to wonder why I'm not there. Did I make the right decision? Could I have tried a little harder to get there? And then that goes away, and you say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm fine. 
And you're right, you're fine. But then the next week, you go, that, that was kind of nice. <laughs> I mean, what if, what if it's just, I mean, I, I'm looking at the temperature, it's pretty cold. Car might start, but is it really good for it? I mean, that's a question I need to ask myself. It's got to sit out in there in the parking lot that whole time. And I see Pastor Jonathan's eyes dart towards me when he hears the beeping of my car starter. So, because he knows that's me signaling him to wrap it up. I know. In the 80s and 90s, it was zipping up your Bible case. And now it's the beep, beep, beep. Like, I've started my car. Which, by the way, start your car after the service and talk to people for five minutes, ten minutes. You'll be okay. Anyways, so why risk it? You know, I, I just got so much out of the message that I watched on YouTube that I'll, I'll just do that again. It becomes a habit. And, you know, one of the early warning signs you might have paid attention to is that the reason you felt weird is that you felt guilt. So your motivation to come was not out of, I need what God's got for me, and I need to be around people, and I've got something for them, and they've got something for me, your motivation was, if I don't come, I'll feel bad. Which already tells you that the reason you're coming might, might have switched. At some point, it changed from, I need this, and they need me, to, I'm expected to come. We all need to watch that, because we have in our culture a work and play dichotomy. Everything is work or play. It's either something I have to do or it's something I want to do. And when you first came to this gathering of believers, you did it because you wanted to do it. You knew you needed something. You knew that God was meeting here. You knew that people were here that could help you. And you felt the presence of God. And you were healed and you were changed. And, and she said, I'm going to make time for this. And then, and then, you know, you say, hey, I want to get involved. What can I do to help? And you get signed up for something. And, 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 you know, you're expected to be here. And then all of a sudden, it comes to a place where you've moved it from something I wanted to do to something I have to do, like showing up for work. But Jesus didn't have a work and play lifestyle. Read the scripture and try to figure out when he's working and when he's playing. He's preaching when they're fishing. He's doing miracles when they're fishing. I'm sure he liked going fishing. But he's going off by himself to have a little vacation time, but he's spending time with the Father. When he's teaching, he's enjoying it. He's making jokes. Sometimes he's not enjoying it because there's some pretty stubborn people there. But you can't really find in Jesus' life where he said, this is my fun stuff and this is my work stuff. He's just lived life. He just, he just said, whatever the Father wants me to do, I'm going to do. And, and if that was something that seemed recreational, he was going to do it with the Father. And if it's something that seemed hard, he was going to do it with the Father. And no matter what he did, it was just life. And so what we do in our culture is we, we divide it, though. This is what I want to do. This is what I have to do. And at some point, you switched gathering with other believers to have to do. And, and your motivation wasn't so much, I know God wants me there. And I know I need, I know I've got something to offer. And people have got something to offer me. It, it, it switched to expectations. Like, if I'm not there, people will notice. And then they'll think this. And if I'm not there, then I have to call somebody to sub in for me. And if I'm not there, and, and all of a sudden, it switched from, a, a, a work of the spirit to a work of the flesh. Yeah. 
So then when that happens, it's easy to get into the habit of I wasn't there then, and maybe it's not so bad if I'm not there again. Maybe I can just go online and get some good teaching. I'll give you a secret. You sure can. There's good stuff online. But you know what? That guy that's preaching to you, that woman that's preaching to you, they don't know you. They can't talk into your life. Those people that are sitting there and that the camera pans out and shows the pretty people, and they smile, <laughs> and they nod. And I've been in those crowds. Let me tell you, the camera's like two feet from your face, and you have to act like you don't know it's there. And you're like, <laughs> good, good word, brother, you know, and you can't see the preacher. You can only see the camera. Those people don't know you either. Stick around when the broadcast ends. They're not talking to you. You're not talking to them. You've got nothing to offer. They've got nothing to offer you. There's probably no real uh, connection there. And, and I'm not saying it's bad. I, I watch stuff too, but it can't replace the assembling of ourselves together. Well, what does it mean to assemble? Because, you know, have you ever, you ever had a, uh, a gift that you bought for your child and you thought this would be the greatest gift ever and you watch with joy at Christmas as they unwrap it. You're so excited until you realize something you didn't realize before. Some assembly required, oh no, I got them a present that needs work. Because their pieces are all there. But it needs assembly. You Sometimes we walk into a gathering and we're just like pieces in a box. We're all here. Everyone's present, but there's no assembly. There's no function together. We're just a bunch of individuals in the same room. And, and, and if we're not fighting, we say we're in unity, right? <laughs> we're not fighting. You know, I have no beef with anybody here. What a unified church. What a church of unity. None of us are in strife. But you walk into Lloyd Mall. Does anybody do that still? Okay, you walk into Lloyd Mall. You walk in a Lloyd Mall, and there are a bunch of people there, but you don't say, what unity in this place? <laughs> what unity? Like, nobody's fighting right now. Do you realize that? Nobody's fighting. Wow. We're all just here together, not fighting. That's not unity. That's right. just a bunch of people in a building. Even a bunch of people in the building with a common purpose. They're all shopping. But they're not doing anything together. You know, as a church, if we all just are a bunch of individuals in a building, and then a bunch of individuals in a home group, and then a bunch of individuals at an outreach, then all we are is just a bunch of people in the same room. God wants us to be so much more than that. God has designed us to be part of something bigger than the sum of our parts. So here's the cool thing. I want to read you something from the book of Ephesians. We're going to, we're going to have about three main sections of scripture that I want you to see today. And, and I, for the sake of time, I won't dwell too much on each of them, but I expect that you are hopefully, you know enough to write these references down and go back and read them again. Go back and read the larger context and, and, and let it sink into you because it'll breathe life into you. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, of course, you know that he's talking about who we were and now who we are in Christ. And, and he begins to talk about the groups that God brought together. And specifically, the, the, the main one in their day, the, the main uh, schism that could have been there was between the Jews and the Gentiles, right? The, 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 uh, the, the, the Jewish believers were kind of surprised that the, the, the Gentiles were allowed to come into the church and... And, you know, we're expected to come to each other's houses because previously a good Jew would not eat with a, at a Gentile's house. You didn't do that. It wasn't clean. Peter had to have three visions, the same vision three times from God, just to be convinced that he should go to a Gentile's house. Three visions from God. The same one, not even like a variation on a theme. The same vision three times just so he could go to a Gentile's house. So that's already there. And Paul begins to talk about not that wouldn't it be nice if we started working together. No, he's starting to talk about you have to realize the spiritual truth, the, the reality of what God did in putting us together. And he talks, he brings us back to the most powerful point in history, which is the cross and the resurrection. And he says, on the cross, Christ took the enmity between you and God. He took what made us enemies of God. But then he says, but, but that enmity was not just between us and God, it was us and one another. It, no matter what it was that divided us from God, everything that divides us from one another is a, it comes from the root of what divided us from God. And when all of that was put on Jesus, all of the enmity, all of the reasons for us to be enemies of God and enemies of one another went on to the cross. And then he says this in, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, he did this and he broke down the barrier. In verse 14, he says, he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, literally ripped the curtain that separated you from God, but also broke down the dividing wall that separated one nation from this nation, separated Jews from Gentiles. And he says this, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And that word peace does not mean we're not fighting. It means we're in unity now. We are together and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. What is enmity? It's whatever made you an enemy. And he came and preached peace, proclaimed peace to those of you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit. Not the... The, the spirit that speaks Yiddish and the spirit that speaks Greek, one spirit. In him we have, now I know nobody spoke Yiddish in this time, don't, you know, I get a letter, I get an email, actually, pastor, Yiddish came much later, yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Rhetorical license. So then they are no, listen to this in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow Citizens. I love that, that phrase, fellow citizens. He doesn't just call you a citizen, he calls you a fellow citizen. Which fellow means I'm a citizen with Nick, I'm a citizen with Michelle, I'm a citizen with Spiro, and I'm a citizen with Tia, uh, Tina and Tia. I'm a citizen with these people. I'm, we're, we're in partnership. 
The Greek word for fellowship that, that we see in the book of Acts, that they fellowship with one another, doesn't just mean the eight snacks together. It means literally, it is a word that means partnership. We were in it together. We say, well, we're going to have some fellowship. It means somebody's bringing food, and we're going to eat it at the same time. And maybe have small talk. How about that weather? Ooh, yeah. Oh, the Oilers are doing better. Yeah, but it's two guys. Yeah, I know. But, you know, we have this fellowship, and we call that fellowship. But fellowship is more than just we had small talk over, over uh, you know, tapas. Fellowship is a partnership where it says what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. We're in this together. We are fellow citizens with the saints. Praise God, the saints. That means God's holy people and are of God's household. I love that. So what is a household? It's your family. We are of God's household. In verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What's the cornerstone? It's the most important part of that building. The cornerstone is how you orient everything else. Everything else finds its orientation based on the cornerstone. It's the strong stone. It's the, it's how do, do I know if we're building in the right place, building in the right direction? Do we know if everything's straight? It, the cornerstone is the reference point. So anytime we're talking about unity in the church, the most important thing is that we're unified with Christ. If we're all unified with Christ, we'll be unified with one another. He's the cornerstone. See, if we build a building that looks good, but it's not built on Christ, it'll fall in the day of trouble. Little wind here, a little rain here, or the fire that it talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, that building will collapse. It has to be built on Jesus. You know, what's funny is, is our culture today has, has noticed something. There are people that don't believe in God, and they realize that they need church. They just don't want God as part of it. So they're starting churches that are completely atheistic, completely or agnostic at least, and, and, and completely secular, and it's just a bunch of people getting together because we realize we need community. But would you be surprised to know that those aren't growing rapidly and taking over? That they're really not built for the long haul, that they won't stand any sort of test. They won't stand any sort of hardship. Why? Because it's, it, you built a building, but you didn't build it on the foundation of Christ. What's scary is that there are people that believe in God. What's scary is that we, who, who are in love with Jesus, who he's our Lord, he's our Savior, we could begin to build something that works in fair weather, but it's not built on him. And when the hard times come, it's shown to be cheaply made and built on the wrong thing. Well, here he says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In verse 21, he goes on and he says, in whom, in whom, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into what? A holy temple in the Lord. What is a temple? You know, this word temple, in the, in the Greek, it actually has right within it the word to dwell. So the, the temple was not a place that we showed nice artwork about God. The temple was not, this idea of the temple was not a place where we learn about God or we, we, we all come and, and say some nice things to God. The temple, the way they understood it, the temple was where God lived. 
Now we know, and Stephen preached this in the book of Acts, we know that God wasn't restricted to a temple. We know that he's everywhere. But even from the days of the tabernacle in the Exodus, even from those early days of building that tabernacle, God wanted a place where his presence could be and his presence and he could meet with his people and his people could be with him. That was the whole point of the temple. It was not that God needed an HQ on earth. It wasn't that God needed a vacation home on the planet. The whole point of the temple was this is where people, this is where I'm going to dwell. My presence will be and you'll find me here. Now, he says, here's the new temple. It's us. He says, we are the building and we are being fitted together. Oh, the complexity of that little phrase. Oh, how much that phrase is going to bug you. Being fitted. Being fitted is oh, you, when you just read it, nobody got annoyed by that. Nobody got worried about that. We read it and we were just ready to go on to the next verse. But oh, I'm going to bug you with it a little bit. You got to stop for a minute because being fitted means that we're all pieces that don't, maybe, maybe we don't know how we fit. Maybe we don't fit yet. Maybe we're the wrong size or the wrong shape. And, 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 and there's this process of being fitted, which is those rough edges get ground off a little bit and, and somehow God takes one piece and puts it with another piece and puts it with another piece. And we find our place in his great building. But we're not the ones who pick the place. And we're not the ones who pick which part we get to, get to be. You know, he says in 1 Corinthians 12 that when he talks about the body, he says that God puts each part in the body as he desires. As he desires, not as you or your mom or, or anybody. It's, 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 how, it's how he desires it. And now he says being fitted. Do you know the process of being fitted means that at some point you got to get over yourself and your need to be the individual that you've, the image and the individual that you've crafted. The person that you've put out there on Instagram. The, the person, the, the image you've created and, and, and our sense of this is who I am. And y- you know, y'all haters, back off because I just got to be me. Well, God did create you to be an individual. He created you different. No, no one's like you. He, his glory is shown in your individuality. But here's the point. The goal of life is not to be an individual. The goal of life is to be part of who he is, to grow into him with one another. And so uh, part of our, we've made an idol out of our individuality. We've thought that's the highest thing is just to be me. But God says, ah, something's going to get left behind in the process. Did you ever notice, Disney didn't tell you this, the fairy tales didn't tell you this, but being married is one of God's great ways of getting rid of your pride, <laughs> of getting rid of selfishness, right? Because if you think you're going to survive marriage and thrive in a marriage by saying, I just got to be me all the time. <laughs> You'll discover some issues with that. <laughs> right? There'll be some times where it just gotta be me doesn't always jive with my wife being herself. And that somewhere in the process, we find out who we are and we're individuals, but he took two individuals and he made them one. Yeah. 
And so sometimes it's not about, I just got to eat what I want to eat. Or I just got to sleep when I want to sleep. Or we're going to vacation where I want to vacation. Or we're going to do this. and It becomes laying your life down for one another and putting each other first. And in doing so, we become more like Jesus. Every day we're married. Or it gets really hard. <laughs> and in most, like, most likely, there's a little bit of both. Well, the same thing happens when you become part of a gathering of believers. If you've been able to just avoid any sort of polishing, if you've been able to avoid any sort of correction, if you've been able to sidestep any contrary word that's going to tell you maybe something needs to change, you're not really living. You're not really living. That's, there's something so great about submitting yourself to a power bigger than yourself. And I'm not talking about an organization. I'm talking about the spirit of God. Here's the thing. He's fitting us together. Yeah. So it, it, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not the loud voice in the church that changes you. It's not, the, it's not a, a new program that changes you. It's God. And you find, wait a minute, I was made to fit with these people. How in the world? Look, at, I mean, even today, I'm looking out at the, the congregation and how many nationalities do I see and how, how many age groups and, 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 and different types of jobs. And, you know, even this relatively small group here tonight, to this morning, how many languages are represented here? How many different styles are represented? Right? And somehow we all find unity. Somehow we're all working together. That's got to be a work of God. Even better than that, we're being fitted and built up together to be a place, the holy temple of the Lord. Listen, look at the next verse because it's so exciting. In whom you also are being built together. Take note of that. Built together. Built together together. If you just were here the last few weeks, you might have started to think that God is building my thing, and my thing is going to be glorious. And sure enough, but here he says we're being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Here's the greatest thing. God lives in this building. Not this building, not this, not this physical building we're meeting in. But the unity of believers, in the gathering of believers, God lives there. Right. Isn't it awesome and amazing that he chooses? Remember, Peter talks about this in 1 Peter. He says, you guys are living stones. He didn't say you guys, but I'm saying that. He says, you're living stones that build a spiritual house. In other words, a temple, a place where sacrifices are made. In which a spiritual priesthood, that's us too, that's all of us. We're the priesthood of God. A spiritual priesthood offers spiritual sacrifices made acceptable through Jesus Christ, which means that he says, you are living stones that build a house. How many of you, and I've used this example before, but I'm going to use it again. How many of you would be confident right now to take a, a big, you know, a, take a couple of bricks and stick them on your chest and say, I have shelter? <laughs> right? That's not shelter. That's not a house. One brick does not make a house. One two-by-four does not make a house. There is not one piece of material that can make a house. It's, it's all of these things put together that builds something. 
And he says, when we're built together, we're living stones. You know the thing about living stones? They change. They're not always, you know, the same. We're, we're, we're not uniform, and we don't need to be uniform. God fits us together. In fact, I even told you, look at these five fingers on my left hand. They look different, but these at least are fingers, so they should be sort of the same. But even the things that are supposed to be the same are different. And in the body of Christ, there's such diversity that God doesn't want us to be a clone of anyone else. Doesn't need you to be. You are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So it's, it's the most powerful thought that God wants to live in this place. Sometimes we say this is, well, this is the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. And when you read that verse in your mind, maybe you picture this building. But this building, I've said this many times, this building could get demolished tomorrow and the house of the Lord would still be standing. Yeah. We're the house of the Lord. You know, we, we, I don't know if your parents use this or if you use this for your kids, but there'd be times where you don't want your kids to be rowdy and run around and wreck things in the church. And so you'd say, hey, this is God's house. Behave. And they begin to think that this building is where God lives. But what happens on Monday? What happens on Tuesday? God just hanging around, just, boot, just, just kicking around, playing games. What's he doing waiting for us to show up? Well, he doesn't live in the building. You know that. I know in Loon Lake, uh, um, every now and then, this has happened more than once, which is really troubling. Um, <laughs> but there'll be a, a family that doesn't come often. But they're, they bring their kids, and you know th these are different families. I'm not even talking about the same family. This has happened with different kids, where a kid comes in and goes, hey, uh, you know, at some point their parents said, this is God's house. So by more than one child, at some point, I've been called God. <laughs> Because they think this is God's house, and this guy seems to be the guy that's always here. He must be God. At our last Christmas, our last Christmas dinner that we had together as a church in Loon Lake, this girl said, hi, God, when she came in. I was like, no, I'm not God. And I thought I got her straight on it. I was like, no, I'm not God. You know, God, you know. But then later, she's like, God, are you going to eat turkey too? <laughs> and she just seemed so excited that God also liked turkey, just like her. Did you know God likes turkey? God, are you going to have turkey too? And I was like, I'm not God. I'm not God, I, you know. And I never thought I'd have to have that argument with someone. And you know how stupid you look arguing with a four-year-old? You know, I'm not God. Just picture if you just walked into that conversation, you know, a 37-year-old man looking at a four-year-old going, I'm not God, you know. You'd be like, I, I don't need to be here. I can go. I'm, I'm out. Well, this is God's, yeah, no, no, no. This, these people around you, when we're fit together, we're God's house. I want to read you something as we draw to an end here in 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that God chose the simple and the weak, not so noble, not so mighty people, not so wise, not so brave, he took flawed people and he made the simple-minded wise and he made the weak strong and he made the not-so-noble members of his own house. He didn't go out of his way to pick the all-stars. He picked us right. to prove his power. Mm 
First Corinthians 2 begins to tell us that nobody could have guessed God's plans. Nobody could figure it out. But the Spirit of God knows what God wants. The Spirit of the Lord knows his will. and He says, that's the Spirit you've been given so that you would know the things given to you by God. He says, this is what we're preaching to you. We're preaching mature things to mature people. We are preaching the word of God by the spirit of God. We're, we're speaking spiritual things to spiritual people. Then he says, but I couldn't talk to you that way. I mean, he, he spends 1 Corinthians 2 telling us all the deep things of God that God wants to show you. The, 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 the amazing thing that God wants to reveal. And then he says, but I couldn't talk to you about those things because you acted like a bunch of babies. He said, I wanted to talk to you like grown-ups, but you're acting like children and not in a good way. He said, you're spiritual babies. In our mindset, we say, well, what's a spiritual baby? A spiritual baby is someone that's new. Or a spiritual baby is someone that doesn't know as much. But in the economy of heaven... And the way it works in the scripture, a spiritual baby is not necessarily a new person. It's not necessarily someone who doesn't know as much. It's someone who has not let those things of the spirit develop in them. They're not living by what they know. Because in Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about people that were mature and then they became like kids again. And he says here, he begins to talk in 1 Corinthians 3 about the reason you guys are a bunch of babies is because you, you keep picking your favorite preachers and your favorite little doctrines and you separate and you say, well, this is my guy and this is my guy and this is mine. And he says, there's a bunch of factions in the church. And he said, because there's a bunch of factions in the church, God can't, God can't reveal to you what he wants to reveal because you're not mature. Your immaturity is showing through your selfishness, through your little, your little cliques and your little groups. And he says that there's, this is not what God's built. He goes on and he says in 1 Corinthians 3, and, and we're going to pick up there. He talks about the, the building that God's building. And he says, if you don't build it on the right foundation, if you don't build with the right materials, in the day of fire, it'll be tested. And everybody's work will eventually be tested. And he said, if it's not built on the right thing and it's not built with the right stuff, it may have gone up fast. It may have been big and fast and shiny. But if it's not built with the right stuff on the right foundation, it'll die. Then he says, and we're going to pick up right here. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, maybe you've heard that before. Someone says, my body is a temple. That's why I feed it only the finest. That's why I take it to the gym every day. In fact, my body is not a temple. My body is the basilica of God. I tell you, I, I'm, a, I'm a glorious structure. Oh, I said, you know, you want some mac and cheese? No, I don't eat mac and cheese. My body's a temple, right? Okay, cool. And when we reference that, we're actually referencing a verse that's found later in the same letter. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your singular body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But in the original Greek, in this chapter, he doesn't say, don't you singular, singular know that you're a temple. He says, it's plural. Don't, as my mom would say, don't y'all know that y'all are a temple of the Holy Spirit? As we Canadians might say, don't you guys know that you guys are a temple of the Holy Spirit? As somebody from out east says, don't yous know that yous are the temple. We could go on. You get the point. It's plural. 
Don't you all know that you, plural, you, the group of you, are a temple of the living God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you all. And he's not talking about you individually because, yes, the Spirit of God dwells in you individually. But in this context, he's talking about the Spirit of God is in this group right now. It's in the gathering. In fact, I didn't read this out of Ephesians, but I want to remind you. He says the whole building grows and is growing up by what each joint supplies. Every one of us is a part of the body, but not one of us is a joint. The joint is when the parts come together and there's a supply of the Spirit in the joining. You aren't who you are meant to be by yourself. There's something that happens when you join together. And we can fight that. We can resist that. But if you do, you'll be resisting God. I'm not saying this because I want more people to come. Jesus will build this church. I'm saying this because this is how we grow in the Lord. He says, you are a temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. And Paul is not saying this with a soft voice. You could tell he's getting riled up. He says, for the wisdom, he says, uh, he goes on, and he says, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. That's a New Testament verse. What do we say the word destroy means? Take something that's built and turn it into ruins. It, it means to unbuild what's been built, to totally take it apart. Jesus said, we talked about this last week, but Jesus said when he looked over Jerusalem, he said, what's going to happen to you because you missed your day of visitation is, is you're going to have an invading force come in and not one stone will be left on the other. Ruins don't come when every stone is destroyed. Ruins come when you might have all the stones there. Maybe some are destroyed, but you might have a bunch of stones there, but none are on top of each other anymore. They're not fit together. When the big bad wolf blew over the little piggy's house, all the pieces were still there. They just weren't fit together anymore. You know what the enemy would love to do? He doesn't even have to, he doesn't even have to get rid of the pieces. He just has to make sure the pieces don't fit together anymore. All the pieces are here. All all the parts are in the box. But the assembly is required. And I want to tell you, the power to assemble is not you. The power to assemble is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the glue. He is the transformer. He is the one that shapes you and molds you to fit. So I've got good news for you, and this is what we've all, all, everything's been leading up to this. God is not looking for perfect parts. He's looking for parts he can use and parts he can mold and parts he can shape. I want to tell you what it says in Romans chapter 8, that that it it tells us that in our weakness, the Holy Spirit works and is not afraid of your weaknesses. Later on, even even to the Corinthians, when he talked about this thorn in his flesh, remember what he said? He said, I've learned not to be ashamed of my weakness. He says, in fact, I glory my weaknesses because in my weaknesses, the power of Christ is made perfect. Romans 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit knows our weakness and is not afraid of it. He works where you're weak, he's strong. Paul said, where I am weak, then he is strong, so I'm not afraid of the parts I don't measure up because that's when the power of God can be made. I want you to know 1 Corinthians 12, if we were to keep going, tells us, if we were to keep going from chapter 3 to chapter 12, you'd be here for a while. But in chapter 12, he says this. He says, no part can say I don't need the other part. 
He said, I'm not allowed to say. If I'm an ear, I can't say. I don't need you because uh, you're an eye, and I, I don't need you. I just need me. You know, we, we, we grew up. Some of us grew up believing that the sign of strength was to say, I don't need anyone but Jesus. I don't need anyone but God. I don't need any of you. It's just me. I, I just need me and the Lord. He's everything. Yes, he is. And this is his body. I, I agree with you. All you need is Jesus. As long as you remember, this is the body of Christ. He says, you're not allowed to say, I don't need these other parts. You might be the... Finest looking eyeball anyone's ever seen. <laughs> but not, no, no nation has quivered. No, no kingdom has, has, has slammed their gates shut in fear from somebody rolling an eyeball towards them. <laughs> Doesn't matter if it's the eyeball of Alexander the Great. Doesn't matter if it's, unless it's the eye of Sauron. No one cares. That eyeball is not. No one cares what that eyeball is. An eyeball can't do a thing. A severed hand can't do a thing. It could be the strongest hand in the world, but you sever that hand, it's got nothing. Take the world's strongest man, cut off his arm and say, this is the world's strongest arm. <laughs> what can it do? Nothing. Even the best part of the body has no function, no power, no, no, no glory without the rest of the body. Amen. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, he put each part as he desired. And you're not allowed to say, I don't need you. And then he says something else. He says, and you're not allowed to say, they don't need me. I really want that to sink in with some of you. Some of you have come to the place where you accept, I need people. But you haven't bought into the fact that we need you. That you're irreplaceable. Every single one of us in this room is not not trustworthy enough to handle the treasure of the kingdom. And yet God has trusted us. Why? Because his spirit is big enough, strong enough, wise enough, perfect enough to take the areas you don't measure up and show himself strong in your life. So I want you to, to do this. Engage let yourself be fit with other parts, knowing that you don't fit yet. That's right. yes. You don't fit yet. But if you'll put yourself out there, if you'll trust the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit will make you fit. Amen. He'll change you. He'll transform you. There's parts of me that are more like Jesus only because, only because I chose to engage with other believers. If I had been left alone, I never would have been changed. I never would have been changed. I never knew, I would never, never have known there was anything that needed to be changed. Because when you live on your own, in fact, here's the problem. By yourself, it's not only you that doesn't become changed. You start changing who Jesus is to fit who you want to be. You ever notice that your Facebook feed riles you up more now than it did last year? Maybe not. Because it works with an algorithm that finds out what you like and feeds you more of what you like. If it finds out that this is your political leaning, it will feed you the stories that line up with your political leaning. Pretty soon you'll be so riled up, you'll wonder why everyone else in the world is so stupid that they don't get what's right in front of their faces. It's because that algorithm has fed you what you want. 
If left to your own devices, and the Bible says in the last days people will heap to themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, you get all the, all the good godly books and teaching that you want, but you'll just gather the stuff you think you like and you think you need, and you won't be changed. But the moment I put myself out there and said, I don't want to be part of a group, I'm naturally an introvert. You may not know that because I'm up here talking, but I am naturally an introvert. I recharge by being alone or being with a small group of people. And God, ha, 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 big sense of humor. <laughs> gave me a task where multiple times a week I'm standing in front of large groups of people. And I'm engaging in community. But when I, you know, this is still a comfort zone because I'm talking and I can talk about what the Lord's telling me to talk about and you're not really talking back, so I could still, this could still be comfortable for me. Getting out of that and spending time with people and loving on people and praying with people and letting people say things to me as much as I'm saying to them. And in that process, I find out that I'm becoming something I never would have become on my own. The Holy Spirit uses it. This is a dwelling that the Holy Spirit lives in. God lives in this gathering. So take your weaknesses to the Spirit of God. Put it in his hands. You say, I don't measure up here. I don't fit here. I don't belong. They said I'm made to belong. I sure don't feel like it. You only will know you belong. You'll only really believe it once you let yourself go and just trust God to fit you there. He'll fit you. He'll, he'll iron out the wrinkles. He'll shape those, those places that need to be shaped, and you'll be changed. And if you trust God with the things that you, the areas you don't measure up, and you'll just put yourself out there. Not, not just out there and trusting people. you got to trust people. But I'm asking you today to trust God. Then the Holy Spirit lives in that group. There's something holy about this gathering. The holy thing about this gathering is not that we sang holy songs. It's great. Not that even that I read from the holy scripture. That's important. But something so holy is happening right now. The Holy Spirit is, God himself is living in this house. We're experiencing what millions of people wish they could have experienced in the Old Testament. So they looked in, wish they could see what that priest was seeing, and wish they could, wish they could experience what was beyond the veil. God is living in the midst of us. And you see it in one another, and you feel it, and, you, and then you feel uncomfortable. But if you'll get past your discomfort, you're going to see God do great things. I've said this to you before, I'm going to close with this, and we're going to stand up, but if you're chasing comfort, you're not chasing God. God didn't, call, God didn't call you to be comfortable. God didn't call you to be comfortable. God called you to grow. Growth and comfort don't go together. But God wants to comfort you with his comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's a different thing. So let's, let's, let's dig in. Let's jump in. Let's put ourselves out of what's comfortable, and let's put ourselves in the hands of a mighty God. Stand up with me, and we're going to pray.